0: Hello, I'm your host, Bulat Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record this show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lawco.ca. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisoft question. And my special guest today is Michael Lebetsky, a litigation partner at Davis here in Toronto. Hello, Michael. Morning, Kulat. How are you? I'm good. And I just want to start right straight away from a question that's been uh, b- bothering me uh, ever since I decided to interview you, our mutual friend Jason Godley mm-hmm. of New York uh, told me that you are the smartest person in the world. And, you know, it's not like Jason is just kind a random... Could
1: say, but Jason has been known to exaggerate.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, he is not, he's a very serious guy. He is one of the leading cryptocurrency litigators in North America. So what, what, he must have some grain of truth there. So what is, what is it all about?
1: I'm sure he was excluding himself certainly as well.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I mean,
1: Jason and I have been friends for many years when we were, we were an undergrad, uh, we were both uh, doing, we both did competitive debating, that's how we know each other. Mm-hmm. And then after university, we both just separately ended up in Japan. So that's how we got to know each other even better. And we've just been friends for a long time. So where,
0: where in university, which university did you guys meet in?
1: Well, I went, he was in New Jersey. I went, I did my undergrad at Princeton and Jason did his at Rutgers, which was just up the street. And we both were doing competitive debating. So every weekend there would be a tournament of some kind. And that's how we got to know each other.
0: I see. And that was, uh, I guess, in early nineties, right? Uh, Yep. Yeah. How did you end up? Where are you originally from, US or Canada?
1: Canada. No, I mean, I was born and raised in Canada, but I chose to to do my undergrad in the States. And it's kind of a funny reason why. I started my undergrad in engineering. And in Canada, if you do your bachelor's in engineering, you're basically doing five years of engineering and nothing but engineering. And I kind of wanted a more, you know, just I wanted to have a more um, I wanted a chance to take more courses outside of engineering in the humanities and the arts and things like that. And that was more possible in the United States. And it was, that's sort of why I chose to go to the States for my undergrad. But that was kind of, it was probably a wise choice because in the end I ended up switching out of engineering. I just decided, I realized after a couple of years that
0: becoming a professional engineer wasn't for me. So do you think the concept of liberal arts education Is uh, an American concept? It doesn't really exist in Canada?
1: Well, not, I I wouldn't say it doesn't exist in Canada. I do think that Canadian higher education is much more pre professional, pre professional than um, Canadians have a more pre professional attitude towards higher education than Americans do. So, you know, there is sort of Canadians tend to more expect that you go to university to learn uh, a skill or to learn a trade than Americans do.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, um, when, when you were when you were in Princeton, uh, you said that you studied engineering and you also uh, studied other things. But I understand also that you were part of some clubs, some activities that had really interesting or strange names. For example, the American Whig uh, Cleo- Cleosophic Society. What was that all about?
1: Yep. Yeah, um... That was well, that's the um we Clio is what we sort of called it colloquially. Uh, so Wig was the it was an umbrella organization that included the Princeton debate team. And it was um, I mean, included the um the debate team, Model UN, um the speakers forum, it organized public speakers. And so it was sort of an organ an umbrella organization for um for public speaking and uh, related activities.
0: They had a model mm-hmm.
1: Supreme Court as well, which was a lot of fun.
0: Okay, and tell more about the debating that you did uh, where where you met uh, Jason.
1: Yeah, well, there, was, um, there are different types of competitive debate in the United States. And my information is not entirely current, but I can say sort of what it was like back then, is that you had you had um, two different sort of debate leagues that focused on prepared topics. So there would be one topic that the announced, the party, the teams would research it and they would argue both sides of the topic. Uh, we did parliamentary debate, which was extemporaneous. The topic would be announced and then you'd have 20 minutes to walk in and have a debate. So Princeton did parliamentary debate and that's what the rector's team, rector's I think maybe had several different teams, but Jason was on their parliamentary debate team. So that's, you know, that's, what we, that's, the type, that's the style that we did. Mm-hmm. And there would be tournaments basically every Friday and Saturday, parliamentary debate in America was at the time focused mostly on the East Coast. So, and there were lots of different tournaments, I mean, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, I mean, Rutgers, Cornell, I mean, Brandeis, every week, um, UVA, every weekend there'd be a different tournament and so we would travel to them and,
0: and debate. And then something happened after you got your undergraduate degree, after you graduated from Princeton, there was a, a gap. And uh, tell, tell more, a gap in your education. Uh, you uh, didn't go to law school until uh, 10 years later, correct? Correct, yes. Um, got... Normalize normalized the gap for us. So what is the gap all about?
1: The gap, well, simple explanation is, you know I graduated from Princeton in 93. Um, I had really, really big student debts, and that's the price of doing your education in the United States, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, that's the thing, Um, I wanted to, I didn't know really what I wanted to do, I I wasn't in a position to incur the added cost of going to law school, I didn't know I wanted to be a lawyer at the time, so I looked for alternatives, and what happened soon afterwards, it wasn't immediately afterwards, but about um, less than a year afterwards, I got a job teaching English in Japan. So, you know, f- flew to Japan. I worked for one of the schools there. And I did that for, I did that for several years. And and that was actually very, and that's, like I said, that's, that's where I met Jason. Jason was in Japan, he wasn't there teaching English. He was there working for a company. And what happened then? I mean, After a couple of years in Japan, I kind of realized that I didn't want to be teaching English for the rest of my life. Like, I like teaching. Um, kind of at the time, I was actually thinking of maybe becoming a high school teacher, but like, I'm coming back, going to Teachers College, getting certified, and becoming a professional teacher here. But I kind of realized that that's so that's what I was thinking at the time. And You know, what happens to a lot of foreigners in Japan, it's something that we call the gaijin trap, that people come to Japan in their early 20s, their mid-20s, they get paid quite a lot of money for doing really nothing except for chatting in your native language. You know, that's what a lot of the foreign English teachers tend to do, is that you're being hired there really... Like every Japanese person studies English for six years. Like they have a base, they just need native speakers to interact with and to practice with. And That's largely what the foreign teachers do. And so what happens to a lot of foreigners in Japan is that they do this for several years. They get paid lots and lots of money for chattering in their native language. And you know, they turn 30, they're whatever, and they decide they want to come home. And they sort of start filling out a resume and they kind of realize that they're qualified to do absolutely nothing except for chattering in their native language. And, you know, no one on this side of the Pacific is going to be paying you, you know, whatever you would make, $70,000, $100,000 a year to do that. Unless perhaps if you're a member of parliament. So, I mean, what are you going, what do you do? So what happens to a lot of foreigners in that situation is they just decide to remain in Japan and they just become the English teacher for the rest of their lives. Which isn't, which, don't get me wrong, is not a bad life. I mean, Japan is a great country. It's a great place to live, great people there. But, you know, that's not what I wanted for myself. So what I did, this was a very, very roundabout path to ending up in law school, is I came back to Canada for the summer during summer vacation. And I met with two headhunters in Toronto. And I asked them, I said, you know, I want to come back to Canada at some point sooner than later, but I want to come back, you know, employable. So if I learned, if I apply myself to master the Japanese language, or at least a master enough of it, <laughs> to Japanese plus X equals high paying job. So choose X to maximize this equation. And both of the headhunters said, without batting an eyelash, do your CFA. And that kind of interested me because investment interests me. So I got back to Japan and I started doing the CFA program. The Chartered Financial Analyst Program, sort of the program that's done by people who run mutual funds and manage investment plans and things like that. And so that was a lot of fun. I was kind of interesting. I was, a, I, I was not the usual profile of a CFA. Most people who do CFAs work in investment. They work for brokers or traders or fund managers and things like that. Like I had no prior background, so it was all very new to me. But I began doing the program and found it very interesting. And then I'm sorry, this is turning out to be a longer story than it probably should no, be. No, this uh,
0: is gold. This is good stuff.
1: <laughs> I got a. I found a company in Japan that was basically marketing investments to expatriates, and they were considering setting up a setting up setting up an office in Vietnam. And they asked me um, to go to Vietnam to do a business study for them. So I was sent to Vietnam, and. I met a lot of people to learn about opening up a business, an expatriate business in Vietnam, studied some of the Vietnamese language as well. That language is very interesting. Um, don't test me on it because I have almost forgotten pretty much everything is, by now. Is it, <laughs> is, it similar
0: to, is it similar to Cantonese?
1: Uh, no, the, well, let me, with, with one important nuance, this is a bit of an aside, but it's an aside I don't mind talking about because it's fascinating because I learned something I learned when I was there. So linguistically, Vietnamese and Japanese are in completely different families than Chinese. Like Chinese is in the Sino-Tibetan family. It has its own um, sort of linguistic you know, history and origins. You know, Vietnam, Vietnamese is a different family. Ch- Japanese is a different family. But because of China's cultural prestige and influence over the centuries, both languages, and Korean as well, borrowed huge numbers of words, huge quantities of vocabulary from Chinese. So approximately sixty percent of Japanese vocabulary comes from Chinese and Vietnamese. It's about seventy percent. I mean, a, a linguist can give you a more accurate number, I'm sure, but about seventy percent of Vietnamese vocabulary comes from Chinese. And when I say from Chinese, it's Southern Chinese. I don't think it's Cantonese. I think it's probably Hokkien, but you know, uh, Fukunese. But so when I went to Vietnam, and you know, Vietnamese is written in the Latin alphabet, um, and I kept seeing all these words that look unfamiliar to me but what i was but vietnamese used to be written in chinese characters like japanese is now an adaptive form of them i got a dictionary that was not vietnamese japanese or vietnamese english but was vietnamese to old vietnamese so it showed the vietnamese words (laughs) using the characters and once i got once i realized
0: kanji
1: they were they were many ways the same characters i used and i the, the phonetic links became obvious. So for example, Vietnamese words with V, V, the sound V is a common sound in Vietnamese. It doesn't exist in Japanese. So um, the Vietnamese word Vien, in Japanese, it would come out as N. You see what I mean? Just drop the V. Then the the Nia sound, as in um, like the Vietnamese surname Nguyen, which is a very common Vietnamese surname. The Nia sound doesn't exist in Japanese, but it would come out as Gen. So a word, the word Nguyen in Vietnamese comes out in Japanese as gen. It's completely irregular. The n's become G's, the V's are dropped and so on and so forth. There, is a, there are very predictable and regular phonetic um, transpositions. And once you kind of, once I realized what those transpositions were, I was able to decipher a good number of Vietnamese words because of the common origin with Chinese. See what I mean? So, yes. linguistically, no, Vietnamese is not related to Chinese or to Cantonese or to or to Japanese. But because of the extensive vocabulary borrowing, there's a what can I say? There's a an element of commonality that makes the languages accessible. What makes what each of the languages accessible to speakers of the other?
0: Well, uh, so. This is an interesting path and uh, it's obvious to me that you're still um, nostalgic about this path. But another interesting thing about this path is that this path took you to McGill Law School where you graduated as a double gold medalist because you went Uh, to an MBA, LLB, BCL program. Um, so how yeah. do you, so what is it? What is, yeah, explain.
1: Well, um, there's the joint, that's kind of how it's, this is sort of finishing the story is that when I was in Vietnam, I met a lot of diplomats. That was part of my task. I met a lot of trade commissioners from Japan, from Canada, America, to talk about what support was available to foreign businesses. And I kind of thought to myself that what these diplomats do was more interesting than what I was doing. So I returned to Japan. And I sat the exam for the Canadian Foreign Service. Mm. And this was actually very funny because most people in Canada joined the Diplomatic Service because they want to travel and see the world. I applied to join the Diplomatic Service because I wanted to return to Canada. <laughs> it's, again, it's a very circuitous route. Um, so I was accepted into the Diplomatic Service and I asked to be a trade commissioner because actually that's the work I thought those are the guys I met in Vietnam, and I thought their work was really interesting. In Canada, when you join the diplomatic service, I don't know if this is still the case, like I said, this was about 20 years ago, but at the time, you would be assigned to one of four divisions. And it was very difficult to move from one division to the other. And the division I was assigned to was immigration. So I became, a, I was a visa officer.
0: And- I, no- I noticed that when I searched Young Canley
1: yeah so yes my (laughs) earliest case on Canley was one before i went to law school i you know i refused visas to some people and they you know there was a judicial review that was my kind of first exposure to the federal court system the um and i might add that the court agreed with me um yes the but yeah the um so that mean don't get me wrong immigration was very interesting work like I had my language training I did a year in headquarters then I was sent to Haiti for two years where I was doing visa officer work in both Haiti and the Dominican Republic
0: and you speak Haitian Creole
1: I, it's rusty but yes um, Creoles a, yeah Creole is a very interesting language I did a lot of fun to learn I was doing I could do I, I could speak fairly well by the time I was done I was doing my immigrant interviews mostly in Creole um, I mean, if you speak French, Creole is not that hard to learn. I mean, it's a very, it's a different language. Don't get me wrong. very completely different grammar, but most Creole vocabulary comes from French. So the joke we often used to say about Creole is that if you understand French, you can understand Creole if it's spoken slowly. The problem is that Haitians never speak slowly. So, <laughs> but one more thing I could say about Creole, which I found to be very interesting is that Creole is a very it's a very direct language. Like, you know, there's no passive voice in Creole. It's a, you know, you, the, it's just the type of language that you want to express something. It's typically comes out in a very direct way. And I often found that when I was doing my immigrant interviews, that, you know, if I could understand everything without any difficulty what was being said, It was a strong indicator to me that the person was being truthful with me that when someone tries to get when you try to get evasive in creole it's hard to be evasive in creole because the language just isn't set up for it and so when you're trying to be evasive in creole it comes across as sort of babble now when i was doing an interview if i couldn't understand what the person was saying i couldn't continue that i have to understand what the person is telling me if i If I stopped understanding them, I would ask for an interpreter to come in. And that was always a sign. If I ever had to call for the interpreter, it was a sign that the interview was not going well (laughs) because, not always, but very often, if I wasn't following what was going on, it was because the person I was interviewing was becoming evasive and circumlocuting and trying to dodge the points in ways that sort of became confusing to me.
0: Yeah, this is very interesting to me as a litigator. on the topic of credibility and assessing credibility.
1: Well, that's what immigration, like that's a lot of what immigration work is. I mean, is, is assessing credibility. And this was always, and this is sort of my reflection of work as a visa officer is that a challenge you have sort of psychologically being an immigration officer is that most of your time, and let me be very careful with what I'm saying here. Most of your time is spent on dealing with what one might call the problem cases, as in cases where there are serious credibility problems. I am not saying, let me be very clear on this, I'm not saying that most of the applicants have credibility problems. It's just that you can deal with them relatively quickly. I mean, I have a file where the documents are all in order, the story makes sense, maybe someone immigrated to Canada previously, he wants to bring their spouse and their children, um, the spouse and, ch- and child, they, they were declared in the initial visa application, in the, um, in the sponsor's application, declared their existence, their identities were checked at the time, the identity documents and all are all in order. Like, I, I can visa that family without interview. Like, I look at the file, this is, I don't know, depending on the case, of course, but this may be a 10-minute review process. Okay, 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 send for the medical exam. I mean, so that's easy. Where, but where a a file is dubious, like it's really not open to me, especially in immigrant visas, for me just to look at a file and say, no, forget it. I mean, there's procedural fairness. I can't refuse an immigrant visa without giving the applicant a chance to come and explain themselves. And to, you know, if I have doubts, they have to give them an opportunity to explain to me why I might be wrong. So it's the problem cases that I would convene to interview I would ask them lots of questions, I would have to challenge them, but you see what I mean? But it's self-selected. And those are the files that take up, and I have to document everything. So if I'm going to refuse them, I need to document in detail what the issues are. And document the fact that I have explained to them what the issues are and have given them a chance to explain themselves, to try to convince me to change my mind. Which sometimes, of course, I did, depending on the explanations. Um, which, and sometimes I did not. So all that to say is that this is where the problem is you spend most of your time dealing with applicants with credibility problems and you know it can leave you it can leave you very jaded it can make you very feel very very cynical about immigration work in general and i don't know that's kind of why i kind of I didn't want to like, spend the rest. Of my, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing visa, visa
0: work either. Litigation can leave you very jaded about people or transactions, <laughs> because all we see is uh, breakdowns. So we don't deal oh, with. Oh
1: no, I wouldn't say that. Keep in mind, litigation. We often think of what is litigation, but litigation is what happens in court. That's that is only a small part of what litigation actually is. The vast majority of cases settle, and they settle for a reason is that, you know, when parties start a case they're you know, the plaintiff is wants this and the defendant is willing to give that. And then you have the process, you gather documents, you have examinations and you you learn more about the strengths and weaknesses of your case and you learn more about the strengths and weaknesses of the other case. And that process tends to bring the parties closer together. And then you end up, you know, you have your pretrial, you have your settlement conferences and that. I mean, most, I get, in many ways, it's the only the most pathological disputes that end up in front of a judge in the first place. And yes, and that's necessary sometimes. But um, you know, I, the job of a litigation counsel is not just to show up in court, bash the other side's witnesses, make a brilliant argument and come out entirely successful. I mean, that does happen, and we're always you know it happens sometimes and, when, and, we, and good litigators have to be able to do that. But that's not really what takes up most of the time of a litigator. Certainly not what takes up most of my time. And especially not in a tax space, not doing tax litigation.
0: So you said that most cases settle. It's uh, of course true about civil litigation. Is it uh, true about tax litigation? You always litigate against the same party The government, the CRA, you know, Department of Justice lawyers are on the other side. It's similar to criminal litigation in that respect. You always litigate against the government. Do all all, or I'm sorry, do most uh, tax litigation files settle as well, just like civil litigation files?
1: Well, keep in mind, define in my experience. Let me I'll say I'll answer the question, but I must give a bit of nuance that the types of cases that I do. Being at Davies are not necessarily representative of the vast majority of tax litigation files. I mean, keep in mind. Let me make two nuances here. When we say tax litigation, what stage are we referring to? Because the word tax litigation can is also used more broadly to include all forms of tax dispute resolution. So it includes dealing with auditors at CRA, CRA auditors at the audit stage, CRA or their provincial counterparts. Then after the audit you have the whole objection phase, which is, you know, with the appeals division of the CRA. And only after that, if you don't get a resolution at the objection phase, do you, do you then go to tax court? So you already, even before you even get to the door of the tax court, you've had two important opportunities to come to a settlement or to come to some resolution, first with the auditors, then with the appeals division.
0: Right.
1: So. Then we end up in then uh, we end up in tax court. The the majority of cases in tax court, like a third of all litigants in the tax court, last time I checked, I don't know the exact number today, but are people who are self represented, like they're individuals showing up without even counsel, dealing with, you know, for them certainly material amounts, but for the standards of you know for a big, for by standards of a big corporation not, amounts which are not very large. I mean, so all that to say. Um, do most cases settle the in my experience i've had very few of the disputes that i have handled with the canada revenue agency actually proceed to a verdict in the tax court you can even see on canley how many reported decisions from the tax court there are with my name on it there there aren't that many because a lot of the cases i most of the cases i've been involved with have have settled either with the auditors or with the appeals division or before the court in the context of a settlement conference, for example, or through negotiation.
0: So you talked about, you mentioned Davis in this context, and you you talked about Davis, the Davis scale. I'm really curious about Davis. Uh, It's a great firm. Uh, We had another Davis partner on the show, Chantelle Shea um, a few months ago. She's also a litigator Davis started originally as a blue chip transactional firm. I don't think it was really a litigation. I don't think it had a big litigation or significant litigation component in the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about how Davies developed its litigation department over the years and really turned it in into something that people uh, characterize as a bed the farm litigation uh, group? Oh, I um,
1: forgive me, but I think you're missing a very, your history is omitting something very important that the the firm's full name is Davies Ward, Phillips and Weinberg. Davies Ward, the Davies Ward piece was from Davies Ward and Beck, which was a Toronto firm that was founded in 1961. Phillips and Weinberg was a Montreal firm that was founded in 1895. Uh, Phillips and Weinberg has been around for a very long time and was for you know for many years, you know, very much an institution in the Montreal legal community. Um, and Phillips and Weinberg has always had, you know, a, a, a well-known litigation practice. I mean, you can arm the. So, I kind of beg to differ with the with the characterization you just made. Um, the, and Phillips and Weinberg, I can speak more because I I started in Montreal. I transferred to our Toronto office 77 years ago. But I was um, I did my articling in our Montreal office, and that's kind of where I was raised within Davies. The, you know, Phillips and Weinberg was. You no, know, it was a full service law firm that did, you know, litigation, corporate services and so forth. I mean, one of the claims to fame of Phillips and Weinberg was that it was the firm of Jews and francophones at a time when the big blue chip firms would not hire Jews or francophones. And Phillips and Weinberg's claim to fame was also was the firm of Annie Langstaff, who you may or may not have heard of. Annie Langstaff was the first woman to graduate from law school in Quebec, and she attempted to get called to the bar. Alas, unsuccessfully, because women at the time were not allowed to be called to the bar. It was our firm's, one of in our Quebec? firm's founders- in, in, Quebec, Quebec, wow. in, Quebec, in
0: Quebec? What year was, was
1: that? Uh, well, I, I don't know the exact year. Um, I can check that. It was our firm's founder, one of our firm's founders, Sam Jacobs, who represented Annie Langstaff in her lawsuit against the Quebec bar to for her to be called to the bar. Alas, unsuccessfully, he lost that lawsuit decision is now quite infamous. Um, But in the end, Annie Langstaff spent her whole career with Phillips and Weinberg doing the work that today we would call the work of a paralegal. So, you know, that's sort of the, you want to talk about the the history of Davies and the institutional lore of Davies. I think you have to be looking at the Phillips and Weinberg piece for, you know, the complete story, which I think reveals that the firm has a history that's much more than that of simply a transactional law firm.
0: Yes, I definitely didn't know that. This is really great material. And I think we all need to know more about the history of the great firms. we we'll all uh, talk about them they are household names uh, in the legal community, but do we really know uh, where they come from or those great pages from their history? No, I didn't know that at all. So this is really interesting. But tax litigation, was tax litigation really uh, one of the areas that either Davies Ward or Phillips uh, Weinberg focused on or or is it a more recent development? Phillips and Weinberg, yes. Um,
1: And I can't speak, like I can't speak too much about the, 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 the more ancient history before my arrival, but I can sort of say this, I know the Montreal office of Phillips and Weinberg and now the Montreal office in of Davies has always had a tax litigation practice an established tax litigation practice. And that's how I started. When I started at Davies in the Montreal office, I began working very closely with Guy Dupont, who is sort of well-known. He's one of Canada's most well-known tax litigators. He's the one who argued, Kanderell and Ludko at the Supreme Court, which are two cases that I actually studied in law school It was kind of thrilling to be able to to work with Guy when I started at Davies like um, about 10 10 or so years ago. And so that's our Montreal office has always had a thriving tax litigation practice. Now the Toronto office and again I'm more speaking this is more hearsay because I wasn't really part of all this. I know that about maybe 20 years ago or so the Toronto office also used to do tax litigation. Around again maybe 20 years or so ago there was a business decision made in the Toronto office to focus more on what on sort of what was core and and you know the practice the legal market in Toronto is big enough to for that you know keep in mind also the legal market in Quebec is smaller so it's harder for a firm to focus too narrowly in the Quebec context so a decision was made in the Toronto office not to focus at the time on tax litigation and to focus more on what you referred to before, transactional work. But that's changed and it's changed heavily in the last 10 years because of a massive, massive growth of tax litigation over the past 10 years. That, you know, starting with the, under the Harper government, it's continued under the current um, Trudeau government, there has been an enormous added investment of resources into the CRA for administration and enforcement. I mean, the number of auditors has, I think in the last 10 years, almost doubled. All while I might add, the number of appeals officers has gone up something like 10% and the number of judges has remained basically constant. I mean, it was just now increased. So, you know, you have this massive growth of tax dispute work. And so, and that's why over the last 10 years, we've seen all, we've seen the major accounting firms mostly setting up like in-house law firms to do tax litigation work. We've seen a lot of firms a lot of Bay Street firms who have never had full-time tax litigators hire them to set up tax litigation practice groups because clients require it. And so, you know, we've done that a couple of years ago. We brought on Bobby Sud, my partner Bobby Sud, who's to do full-time tax litigation here in Toronto. Most of them, I'm in the litigation group. I but I most of my practice is tax litigation as well. I mean, and our Montreal office has brought on a lot of new people over the past several years to build up a full tax litigation group. So and that's just us. I'm sure many other firms can tell you similar stories.
0: You spoke about the relationship between uh, the amount of enforcement by the CRA, the number of auditors and the amount of tax litigation. And it's a positive direct relationship according to you, the more auditors they hire, the more litigation you will see. Uh, So I have a question about litigation uh, in general and tax litigation in particular. Is litigation a necessary evil in the sense uh, that it exists because people um, or parties or the government uh, break laws or make mistakes or do something wrong, and the more Uh, parties assert their positions or assert their claims the more you have to adjudicate and litigate them isn't there an alternative system maybe the tax uh, legislation needs to be dramatically simplified maybe you know something like that because you know some people say for example police will always exist or doctors will always exist they're just natural to uh, our society. But and there, there will never be a crime free society where there is no police, or there will never be a disease free society where there are no doctors. So, doctors are not a cost, they are productive, or the police they are the productive part of the society. Are litigators a uh, productive part of the society, or they are a necessary evil? Use the tax litigation example.
1: Well, me, no, listen, there's on the end of the day, there's, there's, I mean. There are several different layers to that question. I mean, as long as you have government officials you know, saying to people, entering into people's places of business and saying, I don't think you've paid the right amount of tax. You need to pay more. You're gonna to need to have a process. If the taxpayer says, well, excuse me, but no, you're wrong. I don't think I have to pay more. And there needs to be a process to resolve those disputes. And there, that process needs to be and the importance of having the courts is to have a process, which is not just an arm of the minister. I mean, that's the thing. I, if you have a system where the minister sends in you know, auditors to say, you owe X amount of tax. And if you don't agree, well, you can appeal to another one of the minister's officials. I mean, is that really a fair way of resolving that situation? That's exactly why first it was the tax board and now it's the tax board of Canada was created to be a body separate from the minister, separate from the CRA, to resolve those disputes between the taxpayer and the minister over how much tax is owed. Um, That's inevitable. Now, in terms of complexity, this is the bigger issue. And this is, to my mind, a source of endless problems. You know, the original Income Tax Act, when it was enacted in 1917, was a booklet of about eight pages. You see this book here. This is the most recent edition of the Annotated Income Tax Act. This, doc, this book has about 2,500 pages. And look, this is just volume two. So, I mean, you have this piece of legislation which is extremely long, <clears throat> extremely complex, that is very difficult for someone, even with legal training, to read and interpret. And you have now in the CRA, the CRA has about 40,000 employees who are invested with extremely vast powers to enforce this legislation, that the auditors can show up at your place of business, rifle through your books and records without warrant. They can send demands for information to your creditors, to your employees, to your banks, to anybody really. That may be expansive and repetitive and disruptive, they can issue then assessment saying you owed X amount of money of tax, which are presu- those assessments are presumed to be valid and binding unless you prove them wrong. The burden is on you. And in order to collect on those assessments, there are extremely vast powers. They can put liens upon your, they can garnish your bank accounts, put liens upon your home and other property. So, you know, the, the, the CRA is invested with these extremely vast powers to enforce a piece of legislation which is uncomprehensible. So you can imagine that creates a lot of problems. There is an enormous, an enormous cost to complexity, which is never taken into account in any kind of discussion of the fiscal system in Canada. And let me give, I can give two examples that I think illustrate the point really well. Um, The small business deduction. You know, the fact that small businesses get access to a preferential tax rate on the first half million dollars of income. You know, everybody, every politician loves the small business deduction. Everybody likes small business and every politician says, let's give small business people a break. We have this deduction. It's been around for a very long time or some variant of it. And I don't question the concept. But how does that work in reality? If you're going to give a tax incentive to small business and if you have a small business, well when your business starts to grow you you eventually become a big business and you want to keep collecting these benefits so what people what business people would do is they would set up multiple corporations to try to multiply access to the credit well this was found to be not wrongly problematic so there were and we're talking this is a long time ago there were mechanisms put in place to prevent that from happening and so taxpayers would say well fine i'm not going to set up multiple corporations, I'll have my brother-in-law do it, or I'll have my spouse do it. So then we have further measures in the Income Tax Act. So now we have a whole regime in the Act, the associated company rules, that are longer than the entire Income Tax Act was when it was first enacted. And I have had a case. I had an actual case. I represented a builder, a home builder here in Toronto. He claimed the small business deduction. By all evidence, he was entitled to it. And the auditor said, no, because you have a brother-in-law out in Vancouver, apparently, who had some business of his own and he claimed the deduction. And so that's not allowed. My client didn't even know about it. He had nothing to do with his brother-in-law's business in Vancouver. I mean, this is what you have. And, I, and let me, and let me come kind of the punchline to this analysis is, is there any evidence, and I'm not, I'm not offering a view on this, but I'm asking the question, what evidence is there that having the small business deduction actually supports small business like does it you businesses only pay on their profits so you can you can make an argument yes the small business deduction allows more money to small business to grow and expand their businesses but you know those investments to grow and expand the businesses can be deductible anyway so again i'm asking the question if you had someone on your podcast from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, I'm sure they would have views on the subject and that might be more well informed than mine. But my point is, is that analysis there? I mean, or would we, could we potentially, would would the removal of the small business deduction and removing that whole section from the act simplify things? Would it prevent disputes with the minister over that would reduce the number of disputes with the minister over the small business deduction. I mean, a similar example is um, shred scientific research and development credit. Everybody loves scientific research. Everybody loves that. And of course, you know, well, the politicians all get very excited about it. But, you know, I have clients, but you so you're a business, you claim you claim uh, the credit for scientific research and research exploration and so forth. Then three years later, a CRA auditor comes in and says, I don't think this was valid research. <laughs> You have to prove them wrong. You need this auditor who may or may not really understand your business or what it is you are researching. You need to get experts and you need to, because the burden of proof is on you, you need to show them that they're wrong. And if they don't agree, you end up having to go to court, which is very expensive. I mean, and in the meantime, you can be reassessed to deny access to those credits with interest, potentially penalties as well. I, I actually have clients who are eligible to claim shred, and they don't, precisely because of,
0: of the, the headache.
1: compliance, because of the headache and the compliance burdens.
0: But this system um, is not unique to Canada. This is also present in the US, maybe in the harsher form, and perhaps even more so in Europe, correct?
1: I can't really speak to other jurisdictions. I know there are, I know the United States has had numerous initiatives over the years to try to simplify their system, but I'm right. certainly not in an effort, I'm not in a right. position to as to where we stand on the complexity scale. But I am able to say that there is an enormous cost to complexity and that complexity drives the growth in tax litigation disputes.
0: You talked about this uh, mix, this explosive mix of uh, complexity and uh, incomprehensibility, and awesome powers that CRA is endowed with. And uh, speaking of these awesome powers, I can't uh, help thinking uh, um, about remission orders that are completely sort of uh, opaque, strange exercise of discretion where the government is free to just remit tax liability, even though it's required uh, to be uh, incurred under the tax legislation. Can you talk a little bit about the remission orders just to dispel some of the aura of mystery in the remaining five minutes that we have? Well, remission orders
1: are provided for not in the Income Tax Act, they're in the Financial Administration Act, and they allow the cabinet, so it's not the minister, it's they actually This has to be approved by cabinet. To basically cancel taxes that are owing, or to refund taxes that have been paid, um, it's intended to be it's intended to be used exceptionally because you know people are, and you you can kind of vaguely understand why. Like, why should the government? We everybody has to pay their taxes. The income everyone has the burden. So why should you know some people be excused from that when other people have to pay? But you know there are such certain circumstances where the imposition of all the tax that is owed can be un- can be unfair or un- or unduly onerous. I mean, there is a published guide, which is not, sorry, I say published, it's not really available to the public, but it kind of is available if you know where to look, where the CRA sets out the criteria for circumstances when it will recommend the issuance of a remission order, um, including in particular um, cases of extreme hardship, which payment can, and can entail. Um, Uh, cases of extreme hardship, cases of um, sort of changes to legislation, like circumstances where an act has been changed, but not with retroactive effect, like things like that, um, Certain, but very un- where, it would, where the, it would be unjust to sort of subject a taxpayer to the prior regime and so forth. But let me be clear, um, remission orders are very hard to obtain, you have to do an application, it's the process is, you know, to quote David Sherman, it's the process that is very rarely successful, and it takes years. Um, what is interesting is that up until just like twenty twenty, in theory, if you ask for a remission order, and I say the CRA, the CRA make doesn't actually give the remission order, but they'll issue the recommendation um, to cabinet, and if the CRA declines to give a recommendation you can go to the federal court to challenge that decision on judicial review. In 2020, for the first time ever, a litigant was successful. I was actually, it was quite remarkable actually, because up until that decision, no challenge to a CRA refusal to recommend a remission order had ever succeeded. But in the the Monkreich decision, a litigant was successful for the first time, which was very interesting and potentially a game changer.
0: Fascinating. Just to wrap up, so CRA has this awesome power to enforce an opaque law that almost rises to the level of a secret law, given the amount of expertise you need to have to interpret it. And on the other hand, the government, not the CRA, but the government on CRA's advice also has this awesome power to remit um, compliance with with this law. So to me, it sounds a little bit like uh, authoritarian, uh, if you will, you know, like we have this awesome power that we can deploy on, uh, and then we also have the, the ability to just hold it back and let you go.
1: I mean, historically, I mean, it's funny, it's very funny historically, actually, I have a, I have a, a publication that's coming out that addresses this. Like it used to be prior to 1948, There was an enormous amount of discretion that was baked into the income tax act like a large number of like depreciation the amount of depreciation you could claim for your business was at the minister's discretion i mean um the types of allowances you could claim were all at the minister's discretion the minister had the government had enormous amounts of discretion to determine how much tax you actually owed and there was an enormous reaction against this and that's why in 1948 talking some ancient history here like the Income Tax Act was amended to remove virtually all discretion from the minister in tax enforcement. But it's funny, really, over the years, there's been this kind of steady re-infiltration of discretion in several different ways. And including, I mean, that sort of, and we have a lot more provisions of the Act now which are discretionary. And so it's been kind of making a comeback. And I think what you've identified is perhaps part of that trend. Although I would give the caveat, I just too nuanced to what you say, though. I don't think, you know, as much as I criticize the regimes that exist for income tax and remission orders, like I do believe that the CRA is committed to enforcing the act in a fair way. Like they do try to be consistent. I think it's very hard to be consistent when you have such a complex legislation being enforced by 40,000 people. But my experience with the CRA is that you know, if you tell them, you know, in this case, which is very similar, the CRA has done that. CRA auditors will often find that persuasive. Like consistency and fairness is something that the CRA does take seriously. I'm not gonna take that away from them. And for remission orders, I think that's part of the reason why the government tends to be reticent to give remission orders, because they want to be fair and consistent. And if they give a remission order to one person, do they have to give it to everybody? And is that fair to everybody else? So. I think that is something that the government does take seriously to their credit.
0: Well, on this positive note, uh, I'd like to wrap up this fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Michael. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.